Please remain standing as we dive into the scripture reading for today, for our sermon. And our sermon text comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would teach us from your word this morning. Father, mold us, mold us into the image of Christ. Help us to turn our eyes away from worthless things during this time. Father, give us life in your ways. Bless our time together this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. No, I have... uh, I've often wondered why, especially in uh, Western culture, we have, we have such a fascination with the story of kings or of royalty. I mean, if you think about it, just about every, every great story has a king in it. The, most, uh, the two most quoted fiction stories and sermons across every denomination is Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia series, which is based around King Aslan. And you could probably guess the next one. It's Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which has, has kings in it as well. Right now, the most popular books in America are uh, George Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series, which is uh, it's a tale of seven kingdoms battling for a throne. You have Disney's The Lion King. They're remaking that movie again. But they're remaking that movie because it's one of the most successful franchises in movie history. And what's it about? It's about a king who was banished as a child, who then returns to battle evil and reclaim his throne. Um, Almost 60 million people watched the last two royal weddings, more than ever before in history. And in the last few years, one of the most successful successful television shows has been a show on Netflix called The Crown. And The Crown is mostly an accurate retelling of the earliest days of Queen Elizabeth's reign. Now, I share all this with you to show you that we, we, love, we love stories of kings and queens and, and royalty. There's something about it that seems to draw our attention. And I'm sure, you know, if you think about it, I'm sure most of you can recall nursery rhymes and fairy tales 
about kings and queens and royalty and the battle of good and evil and, and so on. You know, so with that in mind, it's a little strange that our culture has this, you know, this fixation and this fascination with royalty, yet it rejects the story of Christ, which is, as we know, it's the ultimate story of a king. A news article was published last week from the uh, General Social Survey, which showed that atheism has increased 266% over the last three decades. And for the first time in American history, with 23.1% of the population, more people identify as atheist than Christian, which has always been the number one religion in America. You know, when you consider all this, it doesn't seem to add up. We have this culture which loves stories of royalty, and Christianity has the ultimate story of a king, a true king. And yet our king's story is it's frowned upon in our society. And our king, is he's rejected. But what we just heard in the epistle reading and the gospel reading this morning is that Jesus' kingship has never been totally accepted. And many will never accept Christ as king. But Paul tells us that one day every knee will bow before King Jesus and confess him as Lord. And at the beginning of this holy week, this is what should give us hope. This is what this week is about. We have a king who will return and reign forever. And so as we honor the day in which Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king, I think it would be good practice for us to meditate today and for the next week leading up to Easter, on what he commands of us. Jesus asked this question in Luke 6.46. He asks, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So as we are anticipating the celebration of the resurrection, which is the climax of his actions during his earthly life, I think it would be beneficial if we focus on the summary of his teachings during his earthly ministry. So our goal today is to be reminded of Christ's greatest commandments. So, leading up to our passage where we are told what our king's greatest commandments are, we first see Jesus enter into a number of conflicts with the scribes and the Pharisees and a few other groups. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are wrong for making their traditions equal with God's laws. In chapter 8, the Pharisees swarm Jesus again, seeking conflict, looking to argue, and demanding that he show them a sign. In chapter 10, the Pharisees attempt to trap Jesus and trap Jesus with a question about divorce. In chapter 11, Jesus cracks a whip at those attempting to turn the holy temple into a marketplace. And in chapter 12, we see Jesus get political with the Pharisees and the Herodians about what they should do with their taxes. Then we see him tell the Sadducees that they are, quote, quite wrong regarding their interpretation of Scripture and about the resurrection. And in our passage today, we see a continuation of this, this pattern of questioning and, te- and testing and antagonizing Jesus. And this had always come from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. In fact, we see them do this over and over again in all of the Gospels, not just the Gospel of Mark. But this story is significant. It's different than the others. And the thing that makes it significant is is two things. Number one is this is the first time Jesus is approached by an individual from one of these antagonizing groups. 
when the, when the aforementioned groups uh, would come to question Jesus, they would always come in packs together to do it. This is the first time an individual approaches him. Number two, this was the interaction that ended all further questioning of Jesus and his teachings. In fact, after this incident here, Jesus will be the one doing the questioning towards them and not them towards him. But that brings us to our, kind of our first question from the text is, why did they stop questioning Jesus after this specific conversation here? Well, when we consider some context around this conversation, this is what was going on. So during this time, the Pharisees and the scribes, they often debated and discussed and sought an answer to this question. What is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? So anyone who followed the Jewish tradition, they had 613 laws that they were supposed to follow. So they often wondered if there was a, they could think of a, a way to sum up these laws so that one phrase that they could use or one commandment they could say would sum up all the 613. So the scribe in this story just simply asked Jesus, what is the answer to this big question that's been discussed for so long? Now, all the previous interactions Jesus had had with these religious leaders were unpleasant, to say the least. You know, in these, in, in these uh, interactions, we see that these different groups were mostly trying to entrap Jesus. They would bring difficult questions to him in order to see if he was who he said he was. And they were trying to prove that maybe Jesus isn't as smart as he seems to be. So they would bring these questions. They would try to entrap Jesus. They would try to make Jesus look like a fool. But this scribe, this scribe that approaches Jesus in this story is different. He's not antagonizing Jesus here. In verse 28, we see that this scribe is actually acknowledging that Jesus is giving good answers. And he, he wants to hear more of what Jesus has to say. And it's, it's important to point this detail out because, well, let, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a situation where someone has asked you a question, but you knew that this person was not really, they're not really seeking an answer from you when they ask you this question? So this would be a situation where a person asking you the question is, they're not really looking to listen to you at all. They're just wanting to use you as sort of a pawn to share their own opinion or to debate with you and to make themselves look smart by proving you wrong about something. So the goal of these types of questions would be to make you look foolish, make the other person look wise or knowledgeable or enlightened. And this is what Jesus dealt with in just about every interaction with the religious leaders leading up to this situation. You know, we, when we read through the Gospels and we read through Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians and the Sadducees, we often we often wonder why he seems, he seems a little put out sometimes with these groups. And it's because of this. These groups aren't approaching Jesus and asking questions out of humility. They're not asking to learn. They're asking questions out of arrogance. They're asking questions with ulterior motives. So when this scribe here asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is, he's not doing it in the way that the others have done. He's doing it out of genuine curiosity. And the question being asked here, we need to understand, it was, it was the grand finale of sorts. This question was almost seen as unanswerable. It was the big philosophical question of the time amongst the Jews. 
And so it's fascinating, and it's, it's really kind of, kind of funny how Jesus answers this question. Jesus answers by reciting a section of Scripture that the scribe and everyone that was listening to this conversation would have been quite familiar with. So Jesus recites the Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is part of what's called the Shema. So the Shema is a, it's a prayer that is to be recited every morning and every evening by pious Jews. So the Jews, they did this because it was, they were supposed to begin their day and end their day reminding themselves of who God is and what their purpose is. And this is still practiced in the Jewish religion today. So it's interesting to see that Jesus gives such an easy answer to this question that these groups had spent so much time trying to find an answer to. I mean, it seems like this should be a really obvious answer. But it also seems like the Pharisees and the scribes were a little, a little blown away here. They were a little blown away by Jesus, so much so that they stopped questioning him after this situation. You see, all the other questions that they had asked him were, were so small compared to this one. It really, it really is kind of comical if you think about it. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had spent so much time discussing this question, and Jesus gives them this seemingly profound answer that either intimidated them so much that they, that they stopped questioning him altogether, or they stopped approaching him because they were angry with how much he had humiliated them. So the answer that Jesus gave, it, it was the passage of Scripture that the Jews should know better than any other passage. I mean, this is, this is a scripture that they were supposed to recite first thing upon waking and last thing before sleeping every day, twice a day. So needless to say, they probably, felt, they probably felt a little humiliated here. And also, I think, a little intimidated. I mean, this is the scripture that even the smallest of Jewish children would have known by heart. It would have been some of the first scripture that they had memorized. Now, one of the points Jesus was trying to make to these religious leaders is that they don't actually know their scriptures as well as they think they do. If we jump back a bit into Mark 12 in verses 24, Jesus says this to the Sadducees when they're questioning. He says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? And I want to kind of pause for a moment because I think we need to realize the weight of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, in this situation, he is humiliating these leaders, humiliating them. He is totally undermining their authority. And these religious leaders, you've got you to understand, these religious leaders, they most likely had whole books of the Torah memorized. They could quote Scripture probably better than most of us in here could. And most of the Pharisees did have the whole Torah memorized. So Jesus is trying to prove to them that they don't actually know their Scriptures as well as they think they do. But we do need to understand that Jesus also says that just knowing your scriptures isn't going to cut it either. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees this. He says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You know, as I read that passage when I was preparing for the sermon I got to thinking about 
you know, one of the things I love about the Reformed, the Reformed faith, the Reformed tradition so much is our, our historical commitment to Scripture. I think as a whole, the Reformed faith, we, we truly seek to know and live by the Word of God. And I'm not only talking about, you know, Christ the King here in Springfield or, or the CREC or, any, or even any specific denomination. I'm talking about the entire historical Reformed tradition. It's in our tradition to know Scripture well and to try to live by it. And I think it's an easy argument to make that the Reformed believers love Scripture. But we, we often need to be reminded of this verse in John 5. We need to be reminded that it is not the knowing of Scripture that saves us. It is not our intellect that saves us. We are saved by our king. Christianity is one of the few stories where the king comes and saves his people. Most of the time, people are fighting to defend a king. That's not how Jesus does things. So we are saved by our king and our Messiah, Jesus. We are saved by a person. Now, there's a lot of irony in this, in this section of Scripture, but, but nothing more so than what we see in Jesus' answer to the question in verse 28. So let's read it again. This is what Jesus says. The most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, I want, I want, to, I want to dissect a word here for a little bit. So the Greek word uh, in this section that's translated as hear, as in hear with your ear, it's the word uh, akuo. So akuo can be translated as hear or listen or receive or understand. But the definition of the word akuo is this. It's to obey in a way that conforms to what is heard. So what's Jesus getting at here? What's he trying to prove to these religious leaders? Well, Jesus is proving to these leaders that they don't know which commandment is the most important commandment. Because they aren't good listeners. They aren't good listeners. In other words, they don't know the Word of God as well as they think they do. Now, they may have the Word of God memorized, but the Word of God isn't alive to them. Now, we know that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, yes. But only if you put it into action. Think about it. A double-edged sword is essentially worthless if it's not put into action. It's only glorified if you know how to use it. And the Word of God is the same way. And you see, there's a difference between hearing something, even having something memorized, and actually listening to something. I had a, when I was in college, I had this mentor. He was a campus minister. And we would, we would memorize Scripture together. We would try to memorize you know, a couple of verses a month. And we, we had these little um, Scripture memory boxes, little note card boxes. It's kind of like a reward. Every time you memorize a new passage or a new Scripture, you got to you know, add, add the card to the box. And um, we would do this every time we memorized something new. And uh, he told me a story once about a fellow college minister that he knew. And this, this college minister had a shoebox full of Scripture memory cards. So our box is about this big, you know, a shoebox is about that big. He said you could pull any card out and ask this guy to recite the scripture that was in the box, and he could, he could quote it from memory. So I was so intrigued by this guy. I mean, he sounded like a genius and someone who knew scripture so well. So I said, well, wow, where does he do ministry now? And my mentor, Nate, he kind of looked at me like, oh, like he didn't want to tell me something. He kind of had this wincing look in his face, and he said, yeah, he's not in ministry anymore, actually. He got, he got caught soliciting prostitutes a few years ago. 
So we need, to, we need to understand that there's a difference between knowing God's Word and listening to God's Word. Just knowing the Word of God does not mean that you love it. And just knowing the Word of God does not mean that you love God. And here's the point, here's the point I want us to understand from this text. The main, the main, the main part. Love starts with listening. In every situation... And in every context, love starts with listening. This is why Jesus begins this answer to his greatest commandments by calling Israel to hear, by calling them to listen, to pay attention, to understand. And we have to remember that Jesus is not telling them anything that they shouldn't know. Because as we saw in Deuteronomy 6, that section of Scripture also begins with this. Hear, O Israel. Listen, O Israel. You know, so I want to ask you a question to kind of reflect to yourself. When do you feel the most loved? When do you feel the most loved? I think the answer, the answer is the same for all of us. You know, we feel the most loved when someone listens to us. We feel the most loved when we are heard. We feel the most loved when someone pays attention to us, seeks to understand us. If you think through your favorite people you've ever known throughout your life, maybe it's a, a mentor, a parent, or a coach or an uncle or a brother or a teacher you had, just your favorite, your favorite mentor, someone you looked up to, I guarantee you every single one of them had this attribute in common. They're a great listener. And when you think back on it, you probably love this person you're thinking about so much because when you think about your interactions with them and your relationship with them, they hear you. They're interested in you. They're interested in what you, what you have to say. They pay attention to you. They take what you say to heart. They respect you and they value you. I don't know of any actually I don't know of anyone who admires a person that isn't a good listener. And the listening that's being talked about in verse 28, it's a type of listening that does produce action. So there's a there's a difference between listening and hearing, at least there is in the English language. So to hear, this is just the dictionary definition of hear. To hear is simply to experience the sense of sound. So as long as you have an ear and a brain, you can hear something. But to listen is a skill. It's to apply the ability to hear. Hearing is passive while listening is active. One who listens is thinking about what he has heard. He's thinking about what is meant by what is said. He, he's thinking about how to respond. He, he's thinking about how to apply what he has heard to his own life. So although akuo is translated as hear, what Jesus means by it is to listen. So Jesus is implying that these religious leaders aren't doing this at all. They aren't really listening to the words in which they are supposed to know so well. Because if they did, they would bow down to him as their Lord and their King. So how do we know that we are listening to God? How do we know that we love God? Jesus goes on to tell us in verse 30, we are to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all of our mind, and with all our strength. There's an interesting addition to this. Jesus adds the word mind to this commandment, emphasizing that even our very thoughts are to be Godward thoughts. Paul, an expert in the Torah, affirms Jesus' addition when he tells us in Romans not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Paul goes on to tell the Corinthians that we are to take every thought captive to Christ. 
You know, we've always, we've always been taught that there are two great commandments. But I want to argue that really there, there, there seems to be three. The greatest commandment, it's, it's, almost, it's almost Trinitarian if you think about it. Think about it this way. Listening, loving God, and loving our neighbors, they're inseparable. You can't fulfill any of those commandments without doing the others. So this commandment isn't whole without all three parts. First, we have to listen to God. Once we listen to God, we will love God. And we love God by loving our neighbors. And this, this Trinitarian type of commandment here, it's, it's all over the New Testament. John tells us in 1 John, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. John goes on to tell us, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So you see, John is saying the same thing. So the, work, the work of our faith is to love. The highest virtue of our faith is to love. But we can't love our neighbor if we don't love God, and we can't love God unless we listen to him and are obedient to his commandments. We don't know how to love unless we heed God's words, unless we listen to them. In fact, we're incapable to love unless we listen to God. God has to teach us how to love. He has to show us what love looks like. I mean, all you have to do is look at our culture and see how they define love and look at the Bible and see how it defines love. And we have the true definition of love, and God teaches us how to do that. So the verses, the verses that come directly after Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 in the Shema, they're, they're really interesting. You know, the Jews recited verses 4 and 5 twice a day, but verses 6 through 9 are, are just as important because they actually teach us how to listen to God. This is what God says in verses 6 through 9. He says, These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. To love, we are to listen to God. We are to immerse ourselves in what he says. But we actually have to put it into action. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I'm, I'm from a small town in Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. And I don't think I ever went into someone's house where there wasn't some sort of scripture on the walls or there wasn't a picture of Christ or there wasn't a picture of the, the Last Supper. But, but very few people who had the scripture on the walls actually lived by the words that were there. So sometimes we have to actually listen to what we think we know really well. We have to listen to what we are very familiar with. In verse, in verse 32, the scribe says to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. To love him with all your heart, and with all understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings. The scribe, is, the scribe here is affirming Jesus. He's agreeing that love is the primary goal of the faith. Jesus compliments him by telling him that he has given a truthful answer. And then Jesus tells him that he is not far from the kingdom of God. Now this is, this is significant because Jesus is making it clear that the scribe is still outside of the kingdom of God as of now. 
We don't know exactly what is keeping this scribe from the kingdom of God. But judging by the pattern of Scripture, we know that it's something that he hasn't repented of. So although the scribe here is cordial with Jesus, I think his sin may have been thinking of himself as equal with Jesus through the knowing of the law. So even though the scribe has been respectful, especially compared to the other groups of people, it still seems like he thinks of himself as able to judge someone according to the law. But what he quickly finds out is that Jesus is the one doing the judging. The scribe thought that he would make a judgment on Jesus, but Jesus lets him know that he is the one with the authority to justify or condemn. One commentator said this about that specific verse. He said, When humans dare to sit in the judgment, when humans dare to sit in judgment on the claims of Christ, they find instead that Christ is sitting in judgment on them. They stand either self condemned or justified by their attitude towards him. So, the last question that this section here brings up is why did Jesus think that this scribe's answer was wise? The scribe says to love is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the answer is pretty simple. Jesus thought it was wise because it's true. And it's a a theme we see all throughout the scriptures. In Hosea 6, we, we see this. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the understanding, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the understanding of God rather than burnt offerings. First Samuel, Samuel declares this. It says, But Samuel declared, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, obedience is better than sacrifice, and attentiveness, attentiveness is better than the fat of rams. Friends, the point of our faith is love. We follow our king and we glorify him by love. We love those who are unlovable as we once were. We seek out those whom society casts out. We bring good news to the poor. We fight for reconciliation amongst people who are at strife. We look to make peace. We care for the sick. We care for the sick. We defend the weak. And we offer grace to those who have never experienced it. We seek to see the image of God in every person. Love is our highest calling, and it is how we bear the image of God most accurately. We are to love God, and to love God, we are to love our neighbor. And love begins with listening. Let's pray. Father, as we close out the teaching of your word, I pray that we would, we would listen to your word, God, that we wouldn't just get in a habit of memorizing it and just knowing it, God, that we would know that your word is all we have in this life, that who you are, who you sent your son to die for is us. We are the sinners that Jesus came and died for. And Father, I pray that we would cling to your word. God, we would write it on our walls. We would put it on our gates. We would teach it to our children. We would seek to know it diligently. But Father, may it not stop there. May we put your word into action. And may we love sinners the way that you have loved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.